Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Jennifer Roth. We have been in a series uh, called Empower. How do we empower men and women to live into their destiny, into how God created them to be. So if you've missed the beginning part of this series, I really highly recommend the first week, which was Memorial Day weekend, that sets up kind of what we're talking about. Steve Fowler talked for the next three weeks about how we deal with some of the passages in Scripture about women and how they serve in the church and in ministry. Last week, Rob Basham talked about how do we empower singles in our midst. And today and next week, I'm going to be talking about empowered marriage, specifically from Ephesians 5. We're going to look today at what does godly headship look like? And next week, we're going to look at what does godly submission look like? And I just want to tell you that I'm excited about these messages because this is a journey that has um, exposed to me that God's depth and breadth and the riches of his grace in this are so so much bigger, um, and it's, it's so much more full and complete than, than at least how I was raised to think of it and look at it. And so we're just going to unpack that together today and, and next week as well. So several years ago, I was in my kitchen, and some friends dropped by real quick. They'd actually been out uh, towards the farm picking blueberries, and they stopped in and said, oh, we only have a couple minutes, but we wanted to say hi. I said, great. Uh, that friend may or may not have been Kara Brown, who was here giving you announcements uh, not long ago. And So uh, as we were talking, uh, she says, hey, tell my friend what you think about the men being the spiritual leader of the home. And I'm like, in two minutes or less, no problem, Kara. This is easy. And I did what any good leader or teacher does when they're not sure of the answer to the question. I, I answered it with a question. And I said, well, tell me where the question comes from. And so this young lady began to tell me that she'd just begun dating someone and she'd been raised in the church and she knew that the man was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. But how do you know when you're dating if the guy that you're dating can be the spiritual leader of your home? And especially in her situation, because he was a new believer, and she actually knew more about Scripture and more about the spiritual life than he did. And so again, a follow-up question, I said, well, what do you think the spiritual leader of the home looks like? And as she began to unpack what she thought that looked like, I said, now, where did you come up with those ideas? What made you think that about this concept? And she says, well, that's how my dad did it in our home. And I said, that's fabulous. I love the fact that you love how your dad was the leader in your home. But are you aware that any man you marry is not going to look exactly like your dad and not going to be exactly like your dad? And that's actually a good thing. And to prescribe the way that your dad led his home onto the man that you're going to marry is actually doing a disservice to the unique ways that God created us and the whole variety of ways that, that, that we do life together. It was a fascinating brief conversation that really got the wheels turning in my mind. And I came to church the next day and, and spoke with a coworker of mine about it. And we were just talking about it. And she said, Jennifer, I challenge you to show me in scripture where it says the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. Does the Bible actually say the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home? And if you look into it, and if you dig into it, you will find that nowhere in these pages, in any translation, no matter how you read the Greek, does it say the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home, verbatim. Now, there is a passage, and this is what we're going to unpack together, where these ideas come from. But here's my point. 
the words that we kind of toss around in our Christian culture, that the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home, become this catchy phrase that, that gather a life of their own, that gather, you guys know this, vocabulary has history to it. When I say the word leader, there is a picture that comes to your mind. When I apply that word leader to a biblical concept, it's quite possible that we are pinning our expectations and therefore our projections of what our homes are supposed to look like on our experience and on cultural tradition, but not necessarily on what the Bible says. And what I want to talk about today is the fact that I believe our box— our box that defines what God means in Ephesians 5 when he says the man is to be the head of the home. Hear the difference in the vocabulary. The man is the head of the home. I think our box has become too small. I think that in our finite minds and our need for straight lines and clear descriptions and an ability to explain a biblical concept to somebody else, we have put it in a box labeled the man is to be the spiritual leader of the home and our box is too small. And today I'd like to unpack with us what's in the box for many of us and, and what it could look like if we could blow up the box, quite frankly. So for me, as I was growing up, I did grow up in the church. And again, your box is going to look different depending on where you grew up, what, what the influences were in your family of origin. But for me, this was the sum total of my understanding of what God meant about godly marriage when I was about in my 20s, okay? So the first thing I understood is that wives are to submit. We're going to spend a whole half an hour on that next week. The second thing in the box is that in a godly marriage, the man gets to make the decisions because that's what a leader is. Because really, when you have a... When you have an entity of more than one person, the buck has to stop somewhere. So in godly marriage, the, it's the man who makes the decisions. Now, in a healthy marriage, as I learned, the husband would certainly have conversations with his wife and take her opinion into, into consideration. But when a decision needs to be made for the family, it rests on the man. That was part of my understanding of what God's design for marriage was. The other part of my understanding of, of what the man being the spiritual leader looked like is that he needs to lead the family in prayer and devotions. He needs to be the initiator of the things that we do for spiritual development, namely leading the family in devotions and leading the family in prayer. And the other thing that I understood really well was that, that yes, in the passages that talk about submission, they talk about the man laying down his, wife, his life for his family. And I understood beyond a shadow of a doubt that if my family were in physical danger, my dad would lay down his life for us. I still know that to be true to this day. I have no doubt about that. And yet sometimes laying down our life when we are living is a little bit more complicated and full of a little bit more mystery. So this... This very good from Genesis chapter 1, when God created man and he created woman, he said, it's not good to be alone. Here's man and woman together. This is very good. Together they have a purpose and a calling. This very good that is full of mystery, that is full of the strength and the beauty of God. This very good that is the building block of society itself, marriage and family, was summed up here in, in a way that I believe was just far too simplistic and far too small. I think there are nuggets of truth in each of these things, but I think it is too little for the expanse of what it is that God created when he created created us and called us male and female and called us into marriage. 
It's so much more than just a decision-making entity. What the Bible has to say about men and women in marriage is not just about decision-making, and yet so often in our conversations and our teaching, that's what we boil it down to. I actually did an informal survey of about 30 friends, uh, and I asked them, what are the top three leadership characteristics? Just name some, throw some words out there, tell me the top three. First of all, all of them interpreted the question in a business or a ministry context. None of them interpreted the question in an interpersonal relationship. I think there's some danger of the vocabulary that we use, using the word leader, which in our Western culture has workplace, CEO, business type connotation, or ministry or organizational type connotation, when we're talking about an intimate relationship between two people. But the words that did come out in my informal survey were humility, vision, courage, listening for understanding, empowering others, love and compassion, creativity, charisma, encouragement, influence, being generous. We all have different perceptions of what leadership is, and the strength of that is it reflects the variety of who we are as human beings, but the difficulty of that is that when we then project onto someone else, this is my view of what leadership is, I believe the Bible says the man is to be the spiritual leader, therefore in your home you need to look like this, we have just narrowed it down to a one-size-fits-all that does not serve the body of Christ well. So if it isn't just our very small box, what is it? What is it? And we want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, and read together what it is that Paul talks about as he's telling the, the Ephesians how to live in Christ, how to live as a church, how to live in their families. And, and I have to believe that if he is explaining this to them, it is because it was different than what they were doing at the time. It was because in the new covenant, in the new reality of the kingdom of Jesus come on this earth, there was a different way of relating to each other than what they had done before. And so he's explaining what it's supposed to look like. And he says this, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is God's holy word. And what I love about this word, as, as I've studied this passage over the years, I've read several authors and several explanations. And there have been those who've said, well, the Greek means this. And I think there's some good in that. And there have been those who've said, well, the culture was doing this. And I think there's some good in that. But there was somebody who explained it in a way that made me go, oh, of course. And that's what I'd love to present to you today. And that's this. 
In this passage, God gives us a metaphor. It's the metaphor of the head, which is a part of a body. And he doesn't just give us the metaphor and leave it dangling, but he actually gives us how we discover what that metaphor means because he says the man is the head as, in the same way, in a way that you could follow the example of someone who modeled this as Jesus is the head of the church. And we know how Jesus is the head of the church because God's word shows us how he is the head of the church. And if we see in a parallel passage in 1 Corinthians 11, it goes even further and says, as God is the head of Christ. So we know through scripture how God is the head of Christ. So we are not left in a mystery of what it means for the man to be the head of the woman as Christ is the head of church, as God is the head of Christ. It's not simple. It is mysterious. It's a little bit messy. It doesn't fit in the box, but it is something that can be seen in God's word because of the metaphor that he gave us. So let's unpack the metaphor together. How is God the head of Christ? What do we learn in scripture about the way that God brings headship, that he gives headship to Christ? We see this in Ephesians 1, starting in verse 19. You can flip back a couple pages or you can read it on the screen behind me. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Push pause. So the first thing that we see about the way God is the head of Christ is that he used his power all that he had in order to raise Christ up. And not only to raise him up, but to seat him at his right hand in the place of honor. So we see God being ahead by raising up and sharing his honor and seating him with himself. Carrying on. Now Jesus is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So we see that God is the head of Christ by sharing his authority. By sharing the authority that God has and he gives Christ a position and a purpose. He puts him over the church and says, you are the head of the church. So he raises him up. He uses the power that he has to raise him up. He shares his honor and his position and he shares his authority. This is God being the head of Christ. We see in Matthew 17, verse 5, this is at the Mount of Transfiguration when, when God came and met with Jesus and uh, Peter and James and John were with him. And it says, a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. And so we see that the way God is the head of Christ is that he verbally, publicly, in front of others, affirms his love. Do you realize that the first time God said this, at the baptism of Jesus, when a voice came from heaven and it said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, Jesus had not done any ministry yet. The headship of God to his son is not dependent on Jesus' performance. It is not dependent on what it does. It is dependent on the relationship that they have and the value and the belovedness is based on who he is and the relationship that they have not based on what he does. That is how God is the head of Christ. And God is the head of Christ in expressing that he has joy in this intimate relationship. This is a reciprocal place where there is joy coming from being in relationship with one another. 
And then he says this, and I love it. He says, listen to him. He is my son. I take joy in our relationship. He has something to offer that you need. Listen to him. God as the head of Christ establishes Christ's permission to act. We see in John chapter 5, it says, The Father has given the Son absolute authority to judge. The Father gives the Son authority to act in the ways that he is called to act. We see again in John 5, the Father has life in himself and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. So where we started with God using his power to raise Christ up and seat him at his right hand, he then shares that very same life-giving power with Jesus, who then is the head of the church. So how is Christ then the head of the church? Well, we are again in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. Again, push pause. In the old covenant, there was the people of God, the nation of Israel, and anyone not born into that nation was a Gentile. And Gentiles were outsiders. There were the haves and the have-nots. There were the in and the out. And in the new covenant, how Christ is the head of the church is he's bringing in those who did not have a seat at the table and giving them a seat at the table. He is bringing in those who are on the outside and he's saying, you are a part. And not only are you a part, but you are a full part. It says, when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. He identifies us as his own. Other passages say he adopts us as children. He gives us his Holy Spirit. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 that part of what he gives us with his spirit is his empowerment. The spiritual gifts that, that he gives each individual for the building up of the body of Christ. He gives us his Holy Spirit and it goes on to say that this spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. Jesus, as the head of the church, brings to the table those who were formerly not at the table. He makes us his own. He makes us his family. He shares his spirit with us and empowers us for the work of the kingdom, empowers men and women for the work of the kingdom, and he shares his inheritance with us. Understand that in Old Testament culture, the inheritance was a huge deal. The firstborn son received a double portion of that inheritance. It was why it was such a big deal when Jacob stole Esau's inheritance. This is a big thing, and Jesus, as the head of the church, shares it with his people. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So how is Christ the head of the church? He raises us up and he seats us in the heavenly places with himself. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. How is Christ the head of the church? 
He shares his inheritance. He shares his position. He shares his Holy Spirit. He empowers us for ministry. He releases us to ministry. He calls us into service of the kingdom. He makes room at the table for those who were not previously at the table. And he shares his authority. In Matthew 28, as Jesus is leaving after his death and resurrection, he says, All authority in heaven and earth is mine. Now you go and make disciples. It's this crazy God way of doing things that doesn't make sense to our human minds. But in the garden, God shared his authority. He said, you go and rule the earth and subdue it. And we made a mess of it. And Jesus came and he cleaned up our mess. And he died and he conquered death and he conquered sin. And he gained back all authority in heaven and on earth on God's behalf. And what did he do? He turned around and he gave it right back to you and he gave it right back to me. Because his original plan was still his original plan. God wants to partner with us for the building and the furtherance of his kingdom. This is how Christ is the head of the church. So we see that godly headship means to raise up to empower, to share inheritance and authority, to give position, to demonstrate grace and kindness, to give hope, to love, to lay down one's life for one another. Friends, this is so much bigger than our box. This is so much bigger than a decision-making entity. This is so much bigger than when we get married, who's the boss? This is so much bigger than our finite minds can understand. All authority has been shared with us in Christ. And so what does it look like for the man to be the spiritual leader of his home? It means that the man asks, how do I love my wife the way Christ loves the church? How do I empower my wife the way Christ empowers the church? How do I recognize her giftedness and her strengths and set her up in a position to flourish and to fly and to expose her beauty to the world because she has so much to offer? Remember, God said, this is my beloved son. I take joy in him. Listen to him. What does godly headship in marriage looks like? It looks like a husband saying to the places where he has influence, this woman has something to offer that you need. I release her into that. I let her flourish in that. I'm not looking for how I make decisions about her. I'm looking for how do I trust the Holy Spirit and how he is guiding us together. Friends, this doesn't mean the husband doesn't make the decisions or the wife doesn't make the decisions. It's not about decisions. It's about how do we live reflecting the way that God is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. And let me say this. In this passage, there is clearly a structure. There is clearly an authority structure. But friends, authority does not mean what our Western, and I suggest evangelical culture, have come to say that it means. I do not believe that the authority, that the structure that God builds in Ephesians 5 is about who is in charge and who gets to be the boss. I think the structure that he puts together here is how do we release each other to flourish? What does the husband have to offer to help his wife thrive in the way that God created her? And friends, I believe that we have made some mistakes in this. I believe that our interpretation and our practice and the way that we have taught this to others has made some mistakes. And I don't think we meant all of them to happen that way. I believe some of them were spoken and some of them were unspoken. Some of them were taught and some of them were caught. But I do believe that we've made some mistakes. And let me say this. I don't talk about this, these mistakes from a place of bitterness or resentment. I am not a woman standing up here saying, women have been harmed and we need to heal the mistakes. That is not what I am saying today. 
My dad did a really good job of fathering our family. And I've been married 20 years in August to Jeff, and Jeff husbands me well. This does not come from a place of personal bitterness or resentment. This comes from a place of walking with broken and wounded people, of listening to, to teaching and reading teaching and watching how things play out on the stage of the Big C Church and saying, I believe that we have made some mistakes, and we need to be honest and talk about those. So here's the first mistake that I've noticed. The first mistake is that, that whether we meant to or not, we have given permission for men to pursue self-seeking agendas in marriage and for women to be treated poorly as lesser in the kingdom of God. We have used God's word as a foundation for selfishness and in some cases for abuse. In the name of, of, of biblical headship, in the name of the man being the spiritual leader of the home, we have set up a culture of entitlement. We have raised young men, we wouldn't say it this way, but we have raised young men to actually in the, under the waterline subtle beliefs, the subconscious of God really set this up for me to be the one in charge. And, and, and so there's room for that selfish pursuit of, of our own wants and our own desires. And, and we don't mean it, but what we've done is we've set up We've set up young women to be raised in the church to say, well, when I start dating somebody, what I really need to start practicing is the fact that he gets what he wants. And that, and that my role as a godly woman is to, is to make sure that I, that, I, that I let him have what he wants because that's what God set up. And friends, this mistake hurts us on so many levels because godly headship is servant leadership. Godly headship is servant leadership. None of us would raise our children on purpose with a sense of entitlement that the world is going to always give them what they want and they get to be the ones who have that say all the time because we know we would raise a tyrant. None of us would do that on purpose. And yet as a church, we have allowed this subtle message to young men that they are entitled to get what they want in the name of godly headship. Let's read what Jesus said this in, about this in Matthew 20. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them, literally tyrannize them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. We do not do leadership the same way the world does leadership. It's why I'd love for us to change our vocabulary and talk about godly headship because leadership just carries so much connotation that it's difficult to move out of the construct of, well, somebody has to be in charge, Jennifer, and into the construct of what if we taught young men and young women growing up in our churches, what if we taught young men to raise up the women next to them, to notice where they had a voice that they could use in influence to share with a woman? What if we taught our young men to empower the people in their sphere of influence, to share the power that they have, to share the authority that they have, to share the influence or the position or the voice that they have with the people in their life, men and women? What if we taught young men that the best thing they could do to prepare for marriage was to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit and to seek Him so that they could learn how to notice the Holy Spirit at work in their wife and notice the Holy Spirit at work in their children and set them up on the path of using their giftedness for the kingdom of God? What if instead of giving permission, unspoken, we didn't mean to, for an entitlement, 
What if we were able to truly teach that godly headship is always servant leadership, laying down our life for the other? Another mistake that we make is that we put unrealistic expectations on men of what it looks like to be the head of their family. We project an image or we prescribe a formula that is simply not one size fits all. Because godly headship will reflect different leadership styles, personalities, spiritual gifts, and God languages. My little understanding that that godly headship meant that he would lead prayer and devotions. Friends, there are so many different ways of growing spiritually, of learning God's word, of connecting with God, of being together with him in worship. It is so much bigger than prayer and devotions. And when a man and a woman come together and become one flesh, they are a partnership of their skills, their gifts, their strengths, their weaknesses. Each Marriage unit is a unique marriage unit separate from every other. And we cannot say this is only a godly marriage if it's the man who initiates the prayer and devotions. Leadership styles. Our small box really kind of focuses in on the CEO type leadership style. The person who makes the decision for the organization. But did you know that there is a shepherding leadership style? The type of leader that comes and walks alongside you when you're on a journey to the point that you don't actually even know that you're being led. You're just having a conversation with someone that you love. Or the coaching leadership style. The style that pulls everybody to the sidelines and says, okay, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing this, try this and try this, now you go do it. The coach doesn't go out on the field and run for you, but the coach coaches and teaches and then, and then leads in that way. Or what about the visionary leader? The one who sees what needs to happen in the future and is dreaming about what his family needs. Or the re-engineering leader, the one who says, you know what, we've got some gaps and some holes, here's some problems, let's work on making this stronger together. Godly headship is going to reflect all those different leadership styles. You might find that you have a leadership style that's much more collaborative. And as a man, you have no desire to make all the decisions for your family. You want your wife to be a partner with you in that because that is your leadership style. Taking, in all the, taking into account and all the voices and listening for understanding and then together saying, okay, we both feel good about this direction forward. There's so many different leadership styles and there's different gifts, friends. I was teaching this in a seminar one time and a woman came up to me afterwards and she said, you know, my kids are grown now, but I never instructed them on spiritual things because I was waiting for my husband to do it and I didn't think the Bible gave me permission to teach my kids about Jesus. If you're a preschool teacher and you love writing lesson plans, and you have ideas in your head about how to teach spiritual truths to your family, but you are waiting because you think the Bible says your husband is supposed to be the one to initiate it, knock it off. (laughs) Teach your family. Teach your kids. Husbands, release your wife to do the thing that she is gifted at. Wife, release your husband to do the thing that he is gifted at. It is so much bigger than what we project as the one way that it has to look like. And, and, and God languages, don't even get me started on God languages. We all connect to God in different ways. And leading in prayer and devotion assumes that the one way that we connect to God is through Bible study. And hear me, Bible study is good. But did you know that we connect to God through worship? That we connect through God through putting on the music and having a dance party? 
that we connect to God in nature, that there are some of us that when we are in creation, we feel the closest to creator. Do any of you have husbands who take your family out hiking and camping and fishing and boating? And have you been sitting at home, wives? And I have a strong challenge for you, wives. There are some of you, because I know some of you have been in my office, and with all love, I offer this to you. You have been saying, my husband's just not the spiritual leader of the home. He doesn't initiate devotions and prayer. And I want to say, is he every weekend taking your family to the places where he feels closest to the holy and living God? Is your husband out coaching every team that your children are on? He is out modeling to them what it looks like to be a follower of Christ in the broken world. There are so many ways that we seek God. There are so many ways that we grow in Christ. We have made our box too small. And some of you women, you have been manipulating and whining and nagging your husband to be something because you expected it to look a certain way. And I don't know why you expected it to look a certain way. Maybe it was how your dad did it. Maybe it was how you saw other men in the church doing it. Maybe you read a book that said this is the way it's supposed to look. But we have to lay down our expectations and begin to recognize that godly headship is going to reflect such a bigger picture than what our small box has said. Our box is too small. The other mistake that I see is that we have overreacted to the first two things I said. <laughs> we have overreacted to the subtle permission that's been given for men to pursue a self-seeking agenda and the abuses that we have seen, we have overreacted to the fact that we've put unrealistic expectations on men and that there really is no formula for this. And so we've swung all the way over here and we've said because of the abuses and the subtle implications that somehow men are better and women are lesser, what we really are trying to say is there's nothing a man has to offer that is different than a woman. And that is just as big of a mistake. Because in the garden, God said, it is not good for man to be alone, but I will make a helper suitable for him. Because there is something different about being male and different about being female. And there is something about being male to offer to your wife and to your family that the wife cannot offer. And in our hypersensitive gender culture, we would say, but that's not fair. If we say there's something that man has that woman doesn't, then we're saying she's lacking something or she's weaker. And I'm absolutely not saying that. I'm saying there's something that woman has to offer that man doesn't have. We cannot neutralize and neuter the genders in order to have healthy relationships. That is not the right reaction to the abuses that we see. We cannot rob marriage of the beauty of being distinctly between a man and a woman who bring different qualities and characteristics to the marriage in the name of trying to make it fair. We cannot be offended by saying that men have something to offer to their wives that no one else can offer, but walk into the freedom to receive from the strength of others. Everybody has strengths. Everybody has weaknesses. It is not offensive to say that some are better at one thing than another. It's not offensive to say that men have something to offer that women don't have. We walk in the freedom to receive from the strength of our spouse because godly headship shares authority and empowers others to live into their calling. Godly headship shares authority and empowers others to live into their calling. And so for all of us, married or single, can we recognize that God gave us a beautiful metaphor and not a formula? He set up men and women in a strong partnership called to model after the headship of Christ to his church and of God to Christ. That we are both Submitted to God and in that submission find that we live in a healthy and whole place.
And that if there are any voices of your past or present that say that men are better and women are subject or need, need to be lesser than, those voices need to be reexamined because that is not the truth of God's word. Wives, I invite you to celebrate what your husband does well. I invite you to quit nagging and manipulating to try and get it to look what you thought it was supposed to look like and to begin to notice. Ask God to show you. Ask Holy Spirit to highlight what are the ways that my husband is leaning into the way he is wired, his personality, his leadership style, his spiritual gifts, his God languages, and how is he bringing that to bear in our family? And there are some of you who are going to have to grieve the loss of what it is not. Not because your husband is doing a bad job, but because it's just the reality that we come into marriage with expectations. And some of those expectations are disappointed. And how do we not allow those disappointments to control our present and our future unless we grieve them? Let them go as a death. Wives, some of you need to go home. You need to name what your expectations were, and you need to grieve them as a death. And really, truly admit, it is not going to look like that so that you can walk into the beauty of what it is going to look like because it is gorgeous. Your husband has strength. He has so much to give you, and he will, he will show you that when you begin to show appreciation for what he's already doing, when you verbally thank him for what you see, and when you give him permission to do it the way he does it, not the way you think he's supposed to do it. I have got to wind down, or Tim France is not going to be happy with me in the parking situation. <laughs> Husbands, you have been given a high and holy calling. There is something that your family needs that only you can give. Do not let the world tell you different. Do not let the world neuter what you have to give in this name of, it's not fair for men to have something women don't have. You have something to give that your family needs. Seek God. Fall on your face before him. Ask him what your family needs. Ask Holy Spirit how you are uniquely wired to be the head, the godly head of the wife and the family that he has given you. Let's pray. God, you are good, you are holy, and you are right. And the way that you set up this world is good. It is very good. And we want to be your people. We want to love you. We want to obey you. We want to follow your way. And yet, in this particular place, there's been confusion. There's been some misteaching. There's been some assumptions. And God, we want to back away from those and lean into how does your Holy Spirit lead each of us in our own marriage, in the own unit that is in our homes, to lean on you and to discover the beauty and the strength of what it is to be one flesh, uniquely wired and designed the way we are wired. God, would you give us the courage to live into what it looks like to be married with godly headship. In your name, amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.